This is the Gonzo Movie Reviews, The Predator Specials. Part 1, the 1987 original, Predator. Welcome back, folks, to a two-part series about the Predator movies. The second part will comprise Predator 2 from 1990 and the more recent Predators from 2010. Now, the opportunity was there to talk about all five films featuring these creatures, which would then include Alien vs. Predator and Aliens vs. Predator Requiem. However, we are covering only the dedicated Predator movies for two very good reasons. One, Nimrod Antal wanted to distance his third film from the two crossovers, ostensibly because they took the story in a direction he didn't feel he could go down. But the record is because they were shit. Two, we will actually be covering them later on in the postscript to the Alien series, which we will be releasing in early 2012. Joining me in this discussion are two mainstays of Digital Gonzo. First up from Game Burst and his very own KDS 2.0, which I recently guested on, talking about Dawn of the Dead 1978 and 2004, Mr. Neil Kid Dog Taylor. Hello. And accompanying us is Mr. Matt, Matt Harrier Ramsey of the Gonzo Planet community, veteran of nine other Gonzo shows, including Die Hard, Buzz Geeks, and the Zombie Survival Podcasts. So, Matt, it would seem your specialist subjects are testosterone-fueled action movies, 1980s trivia, and resourceful people learning to surmount terrifying foes. So welcome to the Predator Show. Hello. And this could be handled in a three-act structure. Act one will take us through the opening mission up to, he didn't disappear, he was skinned alive! By the way, folks, take a shot every time one of us quotes Predator. <laughs> Act 2 covers the systematic hunting down of Dutch's unit and runs all the way through to get to the chopper! And Act 3 is the climatic final showdown and takes us up to... What the hell are you? Also, proof that the Predator had slide to unlock first before Apple. I, I can only hope they release a self-destruct for the next iPhone. <laughs> It goes without saying that this is going to be filled with spoilers, so if you haven't seen this movie, do so before listening on. The 1980s was a breeding ground for a certain type of movie, principally given a dropkick by the emergence of the Austrian oak himself, Arnold Schwarzenegger. In his heyday, he resembled what Clive James once referred to as a condom full of walnuts. His emergence onto the scene left the realistically proportioned men of the 70s looking puny by comparison, and his muscular frame became the body type for heroes to aspire to. It was an age when a man would stand on video covers, sweat glistening on his pectoral muscles, clad in combat gear and a tank top, often wearing aviator sunglasses and clutching one or two automatic weapons. The straightforward narrative was writ large in this single image. He's a badass. Many criminals, mercenaries, or members of the head villain's private army are going to be killed in gruesome ways. This happened just in time to make the sequel to the intelligent, tragic, and thought-provoking 1982 film First Blood into a brain-dead action flick in 1985 called Rambo. And bear in mind, there had been plenty of dumb films made before then, and plenty that featured action, but only now were simplicity and impressively enthusiastic violence being combined in a regular and profitable fashion. Genre standouts include 1985's Commando, 1986's Cobra, 1988's Rambo 3, in which he takes on the entire Russian army and wins, 1989's Red Scorpion. I'm, of course, leaving out Robocop, The Terminator, Aliens, and various other intelligent sci-fi pictures, which tended to be the absolute cream of the action crop. 
The Rocky films certainly surfed this wave of testosterone, but managed to wrest some humanity for the ever-lovable protagonist. And I think we're going to have to include Lethal Weapon, sort of the better films of the 80s that had an action bent as well. There was also a sideline of interest in martial arts pictures featuring white Western actors such as 1986's The Delta Force featuring... Chuck Norris! 1998's Out for Justice starring... Steven Seagal. 1989's Kickboxer with... Jean-Claude Van Damme! <laughs> These films eschewed narrative as a triviality and generally took the approach of placing thugs on a conveyor belt leading towards the high-kicking legs of the hero for 96 minutes straight until the last one explodes. 1988's Die Hard was what shifted the focus more towards more human heroes, and you can hear all about that on the previous Gonzo shows on these very films, which were quite good. And I'm going to mention the other connection. Basically, you're playing What Have I Got Written on My Card, aren't you? Uh, I'm just thinking directors, that's all. Uh, John McTiernan um, directed Die Hard and Predator. And Die Hard with a Vengeance. And Last Action Hero. <laughs> and I like Last Action Hero. I will defend that movie. He also directed Basic. and um, I can't we- defend that one. Yeah. Uh, he also did The Thomas Crown Affair. We're getting close to the point where we can actually have a, a gonzo library of John McTiernan films. It's We've just done funny how three already. Up. Yeah. And he's good. Yeah, I think he went to jail recently. So, yeah, no more films for him for a while. Go to jail and maybe find Uncle John. He claimed he has a miserable buddy having a lot of fun. Oh, baby. Yeah, baby. Woo, baby. Having me so fun tonight. Yeah. Well, old tall Sally, she's a beautiful species guy. Everything that Uncle John needs. Oh, one, in which our plucky heroes journey into the heart of darkness in search of Major Hopper and his men, encounter some ruffians, and unleash Old Painless. What all of this glorious oversimplification does is set the background for the 1987 film Predator. It starts out so deceptive and so by the numbers that the fight at the gorilla camp actually functions as biting satire. This team of beefy special forces troopers creep around the jungle, spouting macho one-liners and lulling the audience into a sense of security that they can handle everything. Even following 1986's Aliens, where the colonial marines seem out of their depth from the word go, these guys are so hardened, so professional, and so on top of things that it's hard to imagine this team falling apart and getting ripped to pieces. But that's exactly what happens. Well, it does sort of play with your expectations. Here is a fantastic group of badasses with Old Painless, which is just... just It makes no sense in the real world, but in this world, my God, is that gun glorious. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Am I wrong in thinking that this is exactly the same model gun that Arnie uses in Terminator 2? Yeah, give or take. It's basically yeah, um, it's a it's a chain cannon. It's it's if you play Doom, you love it. If you watch action movies, you wait for this gun to turn up because no doubt some 1980s and some early 1990s action movies will have it, and it's glorious. It only exists for one reason: the scene where they sort of lose it later on. Mm. But when that thing Cut the fires, jungle down. <laughs> yes, it's it's fantastic. Isn't it supposed to be helicopter mounted only? Yeah. I mean, yes. It, it, it's only really fit for, for mounting in a vehicle because uh, it needs a power supply. Mm. It weighs a lot. It needs a ridiculous amount of ammunition. Uh, it, actually, um, on that note, the most ridiculous line in this movie when Max possible. says, no, let off 200 rounds from the minigun. No, that would take about this long. It's 6,000 rounds a minute, I think. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, um, this is why the game... belt takes about two and a half seconds to, to go through. If yeah. two, two and, and he goes on for a good minute or so. So. Oh yeah, yeah. The amount I mean, they, of uh, apparently they slowed it down. Actually, oh, they slowed it down. Yeah, the the for the the film that particular one they slowed down the the uh, rotation of the barrel because it was throwing it's going so fast you can't see it so as you can actually see it rotating they slowed it down to about a third of its normal speed oh, and also since they didn't fire quite so many blanks because it would have cost an awful lot more money <laughs> and this is why they give it to the professional wrestler to hold so that's how <laughs> wait a second they knew how many blanks they were using so when he says 200 they, they must have gone okay I'm just looking at the budget sheet here 6,000 I'm seeing a disparity <laughs> Continuity errors. Gotta love them. And one thing I want to get up front about this movie first, because I, I watched this literally the day before, so I was really fresh in my mind. And so many good things about this movie. It holds up. It's 24 years old, and it holds up. <laughs> it's the perfect marriage between CGI or early computer technology and practical. <laughs> and it was something that doesn't often. I don't know how often we mention this, but pacing. The pacing of this movie is perfect. Mm. It's it's really, really good. And yes, it, you sort of get the feeling that there isn't really a, a characters in these movies. They are sort of stereotypes. But this movie actually gets away with it because that's what we got used to with the dumb action movies. So like you were saying, we get used to these hardened badasses spouting their one-liners. Nothing could tear this group apart. Nothing on Earth. Nothing but the Predator. And also, I have to admit, it's a stealth sci-fi movie. Mm. It is really a sci-fi movie because they are battling an alien, yet it's dressed up in an action movie disguise. I know people that hate sci-fi movies but love Predator. Can we... Can, uh, you know, there's another connection that I forgot to point out. Oh, and, yeah. that, uh, and that's the connection to the Rocky movies. Because we, we have Apollo Creed in this movie. We do. We are Apollo Creed. And to be fair, out of the entire movie, there's probably two characters. You have Dutch, played mm. by fantastically by Arnie and I have to say in this one this is when he I don't want to say he, he doesn't stopped, exactly act but he does does what he has to do well he gets you know, into character he's not just doing an Anthony Hopkins turning up reading the lines and buggering off again yeah he and especially in the oh shit looks that he gives which he gives several in this movie yeah <laughs> when he's given that look you're like uh oh this isn't good but you've got Dutch who's pretty much I am not a fully fleshed out character, but more flesh than the rest. And you have Carl Weathers' character. Oh, there's quite a lot of flesh. <laughs> but And you've got Carl Weathers' character of the CIA agent, who previously friend. And, you know, there's, there's actually a really good connection between these two actors that you can tell that they've got a past as a history, which is quite well done. And, of course, this is why Dutch really gets mad at him when he realises he's been screwed. You'll set us up! Your assets. Expendable assets. Drink now. <laughs> Stick around. But this this first half of the movie is really interesting because I I think with the exception of the beginning of the movie, which actually shows the predator being dropped off, it's sort of a, a missing in action almost, isn't it? They're going in to rescue some people. They hit the camp and blow the hell out of it. And it's I think basically a team of Rambo's. Yeah, and I think what is it? It's only Jesse Ventura that actually gets injured in any way, isn't it? He gets a slight... Yeah, he got time to bleed. <laughs> <Next Shink. shot>. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe we didn't mention his uh, tobacco-chewing thing. Oh, this God. stuff will make you a goddamn sexual tyrannosaurus, just like me. 
<laughs> that was not lines I needed to hear from the future governor of Minnesota. Anyone know who plays Hawkins, the soldier with the filthy jokes? Shane Black. Yep. Who's Shane Black? He wrote Lethal Weapon. He did. Lethal Weapon 1 and 2, The Last Boy Scout and Last Action Hero. At the height of his career, he was the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood, getting paid $4 million for The Long Kiss Goodnight. Director of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is excellent, by the way, Robert Downey Jr. And there's a link there at the moment, now that John Favreau has stepped down, director of Iron Man 3. Sweet. Yeah. So long as it's better than Iron Man 2. Yeah, that would be good. But uh, we'll get to that in a future Gonzo. The opening is fairly straightforward. Dutch and Dylan have a history. There's some cover story about kidnapped presidential candidates and a missing rescue team. They go in to rescue the rescue team, assuming there's a third rescue team to come in and rescue them should they screw up and need rescuing. They pick through the jungle to find that all is not as they imagined. Someone skinned Hopper alive and his men and hung them in the trees. And it probably wasn't gorillas. On a side note, I first saw Predator on a black and white TV in my bedroom, just rock and rolling on the sound to make sure that my parents didn't hear. Um, because I think I was about 10 and it was like I say black and white so even harder to spot the damn thing (laughs) and I thought when they said the gorillas skinned them why would they skin them they were talking about gorillas (laughs) (laughs) no you're not you weren't watching Congo kids if you don't know the difference between gorillas and gorillas you probably shouldn't be watching Predator having said that awesome awesome even in its cut TV form there are clashes between Blaine and Dylan Mac and Dylan Dutch and Dylan a three-toed sloth and Dylan nobody seems to respect the former special forces guy turned government lackey nobody trusts him especially not the sloth and it, as it turns out with good reason this is a hallmark of 80s movies where the company man was always setting up and selling out the heroes for a profit or a cover-up Birkin aliens the overall message being never put your faith in the man it still pervades to this day Two, in which the shit doth hit the fan and our plucky heroes are picked off one by one by an alien hunter. Part of why the midsection is superior to the first act is that the rug is pulled out from under these guys. They're doing what they do perfectly well and then something they've never encountered before reduces them to panicking, albeit still macho, schoolgirls. First, the hunter picks off the weakest, Paul Hawkins, and his filthy jokes. He contributed little to the battle and appears to be playing babysitter to Anna, who, by the way, is also a Huerilla, though that is never made entirely clear. After Hawkins, the predator goes after the strongest, Blaine. With his fearsome minigun, old painless but lumbering gait, he makes a deadly turret should he be alerted to the creature's whereabouts. So the alien takes him out, but doesn't reckon on Mac's explosive overreaction. And as the ensuing hurricane of bullets tears apart the periphery, it has to flee into the jungle, shouting, cheese it, all the way. This bullet storm is both massaging the wish lists of testosterone junkies and symptomatic of the growing panic of the team. It's a total waste of ammo, tactically worthless, and giving away their position for miles around, accomplishing absolutely nothing. But gives you one hell of a bullet storm, and it looks oh, it's really awesome. cool. It's, I can't think of a scene, another movie where they just chuck ammo into a, a jungle. And trivia that's... question, what was uh, he wearing when he got shot? Oh, it was a T-shirt with Motley Crue or Van Halen? No, it was MTV. Oh, MTV. Oh, of course, yeah. So, so the predator goes, "Fuck MTV!" and explodes. <laughs> Obviously, he seems what he knew what MTV would turn into. It used to be all about the music. Next, they attempt cunning and try to trap the creature, all the while growing increasingly aware of the fact that their every action is being watched. Since their traps are constructed from the jungle itself and of identical relative temperatures, they sort of succeed. But Actually, when pl- no. Hmm? They tried to trap it using modern 
stuff first. Oh, right, yeah, no, yeah, you're right, they start with claymores, and then, Jesus, man, you killed a pig! <laughs> Could you find one bigger? <laughs> yeah, fuck you, man. Oh, and I haven't put anything in here about the bromance between Mac and uh, Blaine. It's pretty huge in the middle. It's totally Gears of War. It's And it sort of comes out of left field, because the stars of the movie don't really get a sense of that they've got this kind of connection at all, you know, because you've got Mac in the background of the helicopter shaving, mm. which... I think he must do when he's trying to calm his nerves or something. Because later yeah. on, there's a scene where he sha- he's shaving when they're trying to... And then tra- snaps the razor, yeah. Uh, but all of a sudden, after Blaine is killed, he goes... It is a, I lost my fucking brother moment. But it's actually a really quite a good performance from Bill Duke. When he's just talking to Blaine's corpse, and he gives him, you know, he, he takes a drink to him, it's... um, it's it's as sensitive a bromance as you're going to get in something that's sprayed with testosterone and extremely action it's shakes up the tree a bit because you've got you know when you see Mac he is you know he's built like the brick shit house that he is and you know he has been testosterone fueled for this moment but it's this really strange I don't even want to say out of place it's just spot on perfect moment where he drops the macho-ness mm. and it's just this this man's friend mm. and he's and- really hurting and not only hurting, you can see him starting to go a little crazy. When uh, when Blaine says, you lose it here, you're in a world of hurt, that's what Mac Drink. starts to do. Drink. <laughs> wow, everyone's going to be so drunk by this <laughs> And we haven't I'm done the famous the line yet. No, not even that, yeah. But with um, with with Mac, um, yeah, as you say, it's it's romance of the century. Um, there's, there's really two stages to it. He goes apeshit, and then everyone all joins in, mm. and they just chop the jungle down and then he kind of just seems to get it back like when he's taking a drink to him he just seems normal obviously upset but perfectly sane and straight and then he goes hunt after off to the predator, predator. Am I having and then he's Am completely I off the reservation at that point he's totally just utterly lost it Long and gone through rage into icy calm well, it's yeah. it's that scene where he's talking to to Blaine's body, where he really cracks because I think that's when he says, "I'm going to carve your name into it. I'm going to carve your fucking name into it." That's exactly it. He's just perfectly normal. It's the kind of thing you, you'd imagine people would do, mm. and then he makes that really quite violent and graphic threat, and you think, "Hang on a minute, maybe he's not <laughs> not quite back to normal after all." And that's what and leads into this, and that's why he stabs the the boar to death because they've set up the trap that involves the modern equipment with the tripwires the claymores and i i'm assuming it, i think it's implied that the predator somehow forces that boar into the camp so he can take blaine's body so he can claim yeah. his trophy he takes advantage of the it might just have been that the boar was there but he took advantage of the situation and the panic yeah and that's why uh, mac doesn't shoot the boar he knives the boar mm. and if you've seen a boar don't think you know on the farm pigs think really big scary Super pigs. Super pigs. And he, he, he literally stabs the thing to death. Pigs in space. <laughs> pigs in space. There's that bit where Poncho goes, bullshit, you ain't afraid of no man. There's something in them trees, and it ain't no man. And then he says with absolute assurance, we're all going to die. And you're like, yeah, you know, they are. At that point, if Billy's saying that, they are. If the only complaint you can have of characters in this movie is probably, oh yes, we have Billy who is the... Um, Native American. Yeah, the native, the stereotypical Native American character, which is 
But again, it, it's not a complaint because he works. It works. And, and also, he seems a little bit crazy at times. And I'll go into Sunny Land in a bit because he really was and is. Okay, I didn't know that, but hey, more interesting. No, totally. So yeah, um, because the other strange thing is when they find the first rescue team. Mm. Uh, as Alex was saying, skinned alive, skinned alive. Drink. Sure. <laughs> um, they still have their skulls, though. Uh, yeah, it's the predator only wanted their skin, possibly because they didn't put up much of a fight. They're still in the helicopter or near it. Well, there's the two in the helicopter. That yeah, they work out that there was like a firefight shooting out from where they were, and the predator basically must have shot them all from a distance. Yeah, obviously they were not worthy trophies because later on he actually. You see the scene where he, uh, I think he he's taken one of the skulls and you see him take it and pull yeah. the skull out. And then he opens a bag that's got the other skulls in and it is the team. Because, I mean, I, I, we're not quite at that point, but the, you can tell who you can tell at least who one of the schools is. You can tell yeah. who Max is. Because he's got a bullet hole in his head, <laughs> one, a laser blast hole in his head. That was such a fantastic headshot. Also, that bit, when you first see the film, and when the Predator's doing first aid on himself, and then cl- clips that thing on his leg and goes... <laughs> just that sort of, that little bit of, of, of the, what you see, that creeping sort of, you know, sh- close-up shots. You can't see exactly what it looks like, but you can tell roughly how big it is and roughly what sort of colours it is and what sort of technology it's using. It's a really great little taste of what you get later on. It, it, they do a really good job of teasing out the Predator because uh, you, you sort of get that opening scene where you see the Predator ship drop him. Mm. Uh, I think you get the odd occasional thermal view, that now very famous thermal view. Uh, I think the next time we see him, you see that iconic... A sort of blurry outline with the glowing eyes. Do you know how they do that, by the way? What the, the thermal view? Uh, no, the um, when you when he looks blurry on the jungle, it's actually really interesting. Go ahead, I'd I like to read this, but I don't. I didn't quite understand. Exactly they had a guy in a red suit, so they uh, when they filmed that, they excluded red because it was the furthest color away from the green of the rest of the jungle. So basically, you've got a predator-shaped hole in the film, and then they shot the same scene again without the predator. And then they compressed all of that jungle into the, the empty hole. So basically, it's reflecting the jungle around him. And it's reflecting the shot without the Predator. Oh, that's cool. And that's iconic because, I mean, I was recently watching... Um, what was it? You the can't event- see the eyes of the demon until him come calling. Wait, next week. Next week, uh, my favourite. Uh, but I was recently watching The Avengers, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, and there is a, an episode where an alien comes down from outer space. <laughs> and the first half of this episode is a pure Predator rip-off, right down to the... Yes, they've even got some guys who look like um, some of his team. Yeah. That one. Is that the one where the helicopter pilot looks like Wild Bill from G.I. Joe as well? I'm not sure, because I might be talking about a different episode. This is the more recent Predator, no. uh, uh, Avengers cartoon. Yeah, but no, it, it does... Yeah. There is a scene where you literally get that sort of blurry shape, then the eyes glow. <laughs> and it's like a Predator reference... In a kid's cartoon. A 25-year-old film reference in a kid's cartoon. It's a really good show. We've already mentioned it in the uh, the Ultimates episode, um, and it's now out the first two volumes on DVD. Avengers, Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Prepare thyself for the upcoming Joss Whedon movie by watching that. No, don't. Don't. I will fight you on that one. Anyway, to go all the way back to that bit when they actually set up the sort of Ewok-style traps. <laughs> See, this is proof that you can use Ewok-style traps. No, I can't justify that, no. 
I when, Pon- when Poncho is injured, he becomes chaff for the predator to trim away. It's an unusual move since his species code dictates that they take on dangerous prey and Poncho is no longer a genuine threat. However, this is a move purely designed to get Dutch to drop him and focus on their final battle. He most likely would have killed Anna too, but she got to... The I think, actually, it's um, more in this one. I think it's more what Dutch says is right. He um, he tells Anna not to, to leave the weapon because it didn't attack her because she wasn't armed. And I think the reason Poncho gets it isn't because he's he injured. Still gun, yeah. He still has the gun and therefore to the Predator is still a threat. Yeah. I sp- either way, he's like, look, this guy is just pissing me off. Get rid of him. Interestingly, when he shoots at Dutch and blasts his gun apart, I wonder if that was an attempted kill shot. Maybe he was just trying to finish this thing off. I think he was. I think he's sort of meant to get that because it's 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 Dutch's bugger up when he's running that causes leads us into that final mm. uh, confrontation. But it also has the bonus of giving Anna that time to get to the chopper. The chopper! <laughs> Take a shot, folks. Before this, though, Native American tracker Billy, whom has thus far exhibited a level of awareness and warrior culture commensurate with the Predator's own species, stays behind to take him on in honourable single combat, machete in hand and ready for death. Again, in a moment of uncharacteristic, unceremonious haste, the creature dispatches him very quickly, and with what we can only imagine is great ease, before hurrying on to Dutch. It's somewhat anticlimactic for the apparently no Cherokee. Especially because we don't get that on screen. Yeah, no, it's like, oh, I liked Billy, and he just goes, it doesn't even make a a screaming sound that you'd imagine would come from Billy. It's just like, ah! It's like like one short of the the Wilhelm. (laughs) I think the only thing I can think of is, it isn't really till the second movie where they sort of expand on the warrior culture, so maybe that's why it's kind of like that. I'll go into that in a bit, actually, because there's there's evidence for uh, other stuff that is predicated upon by the predicated upon by the later <laughs> movies Sonny Landham who plays Billy was so unstable that he required a bodyguard at all times to protect everyone else from Sonny bloody hell <laughs> on a side note Landham like Ventura and Schwarzenegger went into politics and in 2003 ran in the Republican Party for the post of governor in Kentucky in 2008, Landham called for genocide against Arabs and referred to them as ragheads. His comments were made on the political radio show The Weekly Filibuster. Three days later, in June, three days later on June 28th, the Kentucky Libertarians voted unanimously to withdraw Landham's nomination, citing his comments were not in keeping with the party's platform and values. It's like, come on, man, you made us look bad. <laughs> that, for a Native American to call for genocide, that guy's crazy. Yeah, that even throughout the movie, you get <laughs> even throughout the movie, you get the feeling that not just that, that character, that guy isn't playing with a full deck. <laughs> hey, he's quite creepy. I mean, he is. He does have a great laugh, though. <laughs> which the predator copies, which is even creepier. <laughs> Yeah.
the music. Fans of the Back to the Future series will be familiar with the work of Alan Silvestri, who composed this between Back to the Future Parts 1 and 2. At times bombastic and dramatic, but also creeping and tense, he captures a tribal jungle atmosphere with percussive bamboo drum notes and an uneven tempo to keep the audience on edge. Silvestri returned for Predator 2, and his music has become so synonymous with the Predator that the Alien vs. Predator PC game, and indeed John Debney's score for the third film, Predators, paid close homage. El demonio que hace trofias de los hombres. Spanish for the demon who makes trophies of men. The trophy-keeping nature of this species satirizes the grim habit of that of our own. While they may be less eloquent, the predator's sack of carefully polished skulls is the equivalent of walls lined with mounted antlers, bearskin rugs, and ivory back scratches. Also, like mankind's hunters, by and large today, the predators do not eat their prey whatsoever. Now, there are three kinds of hunter. Tribal, those who use every bit of the buffalo for food, weaponry, tools, clothing, tents. Each hunt is for an animal that is needed for survival of their family or tribe. Monetary, those that hunt purely for one part of the creature, elephants, tusks, tiger skins, panda penis, caught purely to then sell on as the commodity, usually leaving the rest of the carcass to rot. Occasionally, they poach the animals themselves for zoos, circuses, or scientific research. And number three is thrill-seekers, those that hunt for the sport. From fox hunters to big game, the emphasis is on tracking down your quarry, ending their life, and in many cases taking a trophy from it. It achieves little more than personal fulfillment, and the predators in these movies definitely fall into this category. Category, an ugly mirror to the twisted perversion of one of mankind's oldest skills that used to support the species, but in these cases is more a leisure activity. We may have some listeners who enjoy hunting, in which case no offence caused with any of my sweeping statements. But we're However, not hunters, so it is a bit beyond us. It's difficult to empathise. However, oh, the, I saw them. Oh, hang on, yeah, I was going to ask Matt, your, your parents have got shotguns. Who do you, ha- what, who do you hunt? <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've, totally keep, we, we've turned into that really bad Steve Austin movie that's a rip-off of Battle Royale, which the name has escaped me. Having said all of that, the Predators, as their backstory has been expanded upon, have a relatively diverse culture. There are those on their species that prize the hunt above all else and desire nothing more than to be on even ground with dangerous quarry that is absolutely capable of ending their life. The kill at the end of the hunt being the inevitable conclusion, but not the point. These guys aren't entirely different from Klingons in many respects. Then there are the larger species referred to as the Black Predators, or Super Predators, or simply the Killers, who are not as concerned with honour or evil chances of survival and just live for the kill. It's these sneakier, meaner, and even more aggressive ones that turn up in the third film, Predators, but even they ensure that their kidnapped quarry are still armed and extremely dangerous. It was the condemned, by the way. <laughs> on that note, bullfighters, fuck you. Toreros, take that beast on with no help from your two picadors and three bandilleres mates, all on horseback with their pointy sticks and your mozzo de espadas. Carry your own bloody sword. Maybe you'll earn my respect, and in the interest of fairness, if the bull wins and gores and tramples the sadistic little fucker to death, let the bull retire and make sweet love to cows for the rest of his natural-born life. Also throw a savage tiger into the ring just to make things more interesting. See how fast Spain abandons that particularly questionable tradition. You want a real man's game? Look at Ricortes-style bullfighting, practiced in La Rioja. No poncy outfits, no harm to the bull. It's all about acrobatic evasion to score points from a jury, and everyone, including the bull, gets to go home afterwards with their psychological well-being undamaged. We're probably going to get letters. (laughs) No, no, seriously, if the Spanish complain, I'm just going to say, well, you started it with your cruelty to bulls. Seriously, look up bullfighting and exactly what happens in it. It's pretty grim. 
It's, it isn't pleasant, but yeah, let's get back to Predator. Really serious turn. Back Dude, to the is, alien from space. This is Gonzo. I can get obscure political statements in at the most inopportune of moments. And what's really strange is they don't feel shoehorned. Possibly the most interesting thing about this film is that it was shot in two stages. Everything up to the point where you actually see the Predator was in the can long before they shot the rest. Initially, the plan was of a freakish red creature with the head of a duck and no agility whatsoever, but the results were laughable. It fell on Stan Winston's creature shop to create the Predator from scratch. Apparently, he was sitting in a plane next to James Cameron, whom he'd worked with on Aliens and Terminator, and James said he'd always wanted to see a creature with mandibles. Thus, Predator was born. Is there not a thing that guy didn't make? Terminator, Aliens, Predators, and a whole lot He only contributed to the mandibles, but yeah. No, I mean, mean Winston. Oh, Winston's fan. Bloody fantastic. It isn't an iconic creature he hasn't created or had some hand in. One of the last projects he was involved in? Wrong Uh, Wrong term was the last time I heard of him doing things. He, he was, I think he was like executive producer of practical effects in Iron Man or something like that. His, his creature shop was certainly involved, but he was definitely in there on long term, which is quite good. <clears throat> and do you know who was in that red suit with the duck's head? Bill Withers? No. I can't believe you didn't know this. It's Jean-Claude Van Damme. Oh, my God. <laughs> he said, it is too hot. I cannot jump. And uh, the whole point was that he was uh, a relative newcomer to the action scene, and they were going to try and pimp him as this sort of alien, a, f- a fairly lithe. They were trying to make him agile, but it required leg extensions and this kind of backwards dog leg thing. It meant he was staggering around the place in red pajamas with a duck head, and it didn't. It wasn't the least bit scary. <laughs> Sounds like Howard the Duck's demented cousin. So yeah, they got this whole first bit, like two thirds of the film done, and they were like, "We don't have an ending." And in a very rare case of going back and doing an ending later, the ending was the best bit. Act 3 in which our remaining plucky hero, Major Dutch, learns vital information about the strengths and weaknesses of his foe and goes back to the roots of primitive man in his efforts to survive a one-on-one duel in the jungle. This is a film that gets better as it goes on, so when nobody is left but Dutch and the Predator, the script falls away entirely, and it becomes an exercise in visual storytelling. Seriously, there's about 14 words after Get to the Chopper. A one-on-one battle of cunning and observation for both of them. Watching the Predator itself over the course of the movie, you would assume that he's just a cold-blooded hunter, motivated entirely by the need to kill. But there's a great deal that comes into play amid the detail. This is a being from a warrior culture, and he's actually fairly young, with a great deal to prove. The shift suit he wears that bends light around him does not make him invincible, only nearly invisible. He hides from this team of trained killers for 99% of the time, because one carefully aimed round in the forehead or heart really would end his hunt. The Predator is in danger, and it is only his technology and stealth that keep him alive. It is the over-reliance on this technology, however, that reveals his weakness to Dutch. 
When Dutch is covered in mud, his body heat masked unintentionally. He gets the full view of his nemesis, caught off guard and confounded and frustrated. He sees its shift suit malfunctioning in the water and gathers that because his body heat is masked in mud, the same temperature as the jungle around him, he cannot be seen. Can I just point out on that scene, after Dutch has landed in the water and he's covered in the mud and crawls out, watch Arnie's face. When you hear, when you see and hear the splash behind him, mm. that is the best oh shit look I have yeah. ever seen. That uh, was very good. <laughs> Later episodes in the Predator series also highlight the youth and inexperience of this hunter. The creature in Predator 2 has a variety of weapons, including an extending spear, arrow launcher, and flying discs, but very rarely uses the plasma cannon. This means that he has to get in a lot closer to his prey before he strikes. From this, we can extrapolate that. Predator 1 is leaning on his ability to snipe from so far away that he's in less danger. It sort of changes in the movies uh, throughout. It's hard to get a handle on which is which. This one, uh, it's sort of, with the beginning, they haven't established a lot of the, the stuff that we sort of now know. The mythos, yeah. But um, if you know the books, which I do, good grief, I read too much, uh, they tend to use the, the soft meat planet, Earth, as their training ground. So they usually are the younger hunters. In the summer when it grows hot. It's very hot this summer. Take a drink. (laughs) (laughs) Dutch sees the means of maximising on the Predator's weaknesses. He can see the thing is tech-reliant and can be encumbered by the heat vision that was previously his advantage. He can also see that it is arrogant and slightly unsure of itself. In all possibility, this is the coming-of-age ritual for his species, and that nervous edge of possibility that it might fail can be exploited. Dutch absorbs the jungle around him, crafting tools and traps from wood and vines of his environment, smearing himself purposefully with mud and taking up the spear, bow and knife of his ancient ancestors, who, it is implicit, may have tangled with these alien hunters in mankind's past. He uses the last of his technology, the contents of the remaining grenades, to make explosive arrows and the John Rambo-like survival abilities to construct several useful booby traps. And finally, his animalistic roar of challenge to the creature, indicating that it is on brings him in line with man's first primal instincts to survive in a world teeming with literal predators and ensure the continuation of his species. Not just that, it's also a flip on the start of the movie. It's a flip on the whole, you know, Arnie and his team were confident, cocky, because they had the tech and everything, mm. and were wiped out, you know, and their over-reliance on that tech sort of got We got the killed. tools, we got the talent. Don't drink, Ghostbusters. Yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we but, got uh, knives, we got nuclear warheads with sharp sticks. <laughs> Aliens. It just feels like a flip on the beginning half of the movie where they were so cocky and confident... And now it's been knocked back. And once they were, redu- you know, Dutch has been reduced to nothing, and just his wits is when it, it just all flips, and it is so fantastic. Arnie reduced to his wits. He's dead. Ah, but, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Arnie's not Dutch. Indeed, true. They paint Dutch as, as being uh, more cunning and a decent uh, a warrior born, someone who would have been Conan in a former life. <laughs> When he gets the drop on the Predator using fire to his advantage, the creature reacts extremely badly, screaming and roaring in frustration and barely concealed fear. 
and opening fire blindly and repeatedly on the silent and dangerous jungle behind him with just as much aimless panic as Mac did earlier with Old Painless. It has been placed in the position of the hunted, and this is something his species does not relish. They thrive on the control and the thrill of being on top of the situation, always observing and formulating. They are a cunning people, not the insectoid drones of the alien saga. They are the great hunter. They are the bolt from the blue. They are the goddamn Batman. They would look upon us as we would look upon lions. So when this particular jungle cat turns things around and the predator's fancy camouflage clearly isn't working, his eyes can't see and his guns can't score a kill, he steps it up a notch and brings out the blades and takes off his mask. Dutch and challenging him to a hand-to-hand fight to the death is this creature's way of winning back some pride for what was becoming an embarrassing failure of a hunt. He knows that to simply kill Dutch with his cannon won't be enough, so he goes for the all-out warrior bravado, roaring at him and observing tribal procedures to ensure that this universally understood match between warriors is played out as fairly as possible. In taking off the mask, we also get a glimpse of what the predator's native eyesight is like without augmentation. In short, it's pretty terrible. He can just about make out Dutch close up, but the detail that we all take for granted is forever blocked off to his species. They see things in shades of red and black, blurred and distorted. It is no wonder that they are disproportionately aggressive. That's the one thing that's really bugged me, is the whole... Once the Predator takes off the the face mask and he loses the the heat vision, Mm. uh, and as we later find other visions, their eyesight is like... How the hell did that species survive? How did it develop technology? (laughs) What spectrum is that thing seeing in? You sort of, it's, it's really easy to understand that the first, when we get most of the predator view, that he's seeing in heat vision. You know, he's seeing the hot parts and that makes sense. And then two, he sees in infrared and ultraviolet. He he sorts through it and then he sees on a magnetic scale or something like that. Yeah, to take out Busey's team, I think it is. But, uh, that initial eyesight is like, I don't even understand the spectrum of that. You think the Predator's going to lose, really, because he can't see nothing, yet he proceeds to hammer the hell out of Dutch. He must have a very good sense of smell. Although it's never really... He's never seen sniffing the air or anything. He's always... In fact, yeah, he's always looking around. There's lots of head movements, but not really, like, obvious smelling or feeling or anything. You'd imagine a creature with bugger all sense of vision... So I think ultimately, like I said, it's very tech-reliant in it, and they've developed this technology to them better seers. Might be um, turning his head to hear, mm. to sort of yeah. work out where a sound's coming from, possibly. It was I mean, a... To be honest, the, the, the red vision, I mm. mean, from a scientific point of view, he obviously sees in a completely different wavelength mm. than we do. Um, where he's from, his eyesight might be comparable to our eyesight mm. whereas we wouldn't be able to see a thing it'd just be completely black or everything would be the same colour or whatever yes. no, no. it serves to make the alien more alien Yeah. every every time it cuts to his point of view you get like a a, a, a real sort of sharp noise and this the sound changes everything yeah it's very so accurate every time you're looking as from the predator's point of view you feel a little bit disoriented because you can't hear properly and you can't see properly but you you know what's there. You know what people are saying, and you know what they're doing because you've just seen it happen. But it, it sort of it just is there to to basically make him seem more and more alien and, and disorient the viewer as you're looking from his point of view to to sort of put that separation in. 
the, the viewpoint is even worse when he takes his mask off. Mm. It's just really hard to work out what you're looking at. Very hard indeed. It's also a masterstroke having the thing have dreadlocks because every single turn of his head is accentuated by his hair and it just it makes him look bigger and more threatening. It's like a mane. Kevin Peter Hall has to be given massive credit for creating The Predator, a man now only remembered by fans of these films. Hall was trained in mime and interpretive and tribal dance and his physical performance is up there with that of Doug Jones in Pan's Labyrinth and Hellboy in terms of being able to convey intent and emotion through even the slightest of movements. Next time you watch the film, watch Peter act. With the abiding killer alien premise, it's easy to pass this predator off as simply a figurehead of malice, but if you watch closely, a story is told about the creature itself. You can see the precise moments when the creature is swaggering and confident, suspicious and cautious, surprised and afraid, enraged and aggressive. These are all nuances controlled today by computer, usually with accompanying sound effects and exaggerated physical behavior, but Hall is subtle and threatening the entire time, with just a turn of his head and a slight movement of his hand. And if you want to really ruin the image, just think of this. He also played Harry in <laughs> Harry and the Hendersons. <laughs> yeah, he was Bigfoot. But, but hey, if you want to know what he looks like without the makeup on, well, the, the Predator oh, yeah. he's, he's the pilot at the end, yeah. the helicopter. He's in an uncredited role. He's the, uh, the guy playing the helicopter. Going, oh, my God, it's so misty. Uh, <laughs> that's not a direct quote. Uh, he, he was, but I have a drink anyway. He also played the Predator in Predator 2 and unfortunately died just before Predator 2 was released. But uh, I think he, you know, his, his performance made the creature iconic. He's a very, it's a very physical performance because the character doesn't speak and doesn't have, for, even when you see it, uh, it, it has the face mask on most of the time. Mm. The, he, he has to rely on his body language to convey what this creature's feeling. And he, it's a very fantastic physical performance because you always know what that predator is feeling with ease, just through his body language and body posture alone. So he deserves a lot of praise. I mean, it's, it's similar to Darth Maul in terms of that Ray Park is not an actor, but he managed to make Darth Maul very, very menacing. But he had the ability to use his face. He had the ability to use his eyes. He wasn't hidden behind two masks. Darth Maul intimidating? Not really. Yeah, he is. <laughs> no, he's not. It scares nine-year-olds. I'm not a nine-year-old. <laughs> Very true. If you play a team of named Marines in the original Worms video game, their names will be Blaine, Mac, Dylan, and Dutch. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> the Predator's blood was made of what? Oh, I know, I know this one. It's the contents of glow sticks yep. mixed with KY jelly. Yes. It just, it just says personal lubricant here, but I've seen KY jelly elsewhere. <laughs> yes, it's KY jelly, also known as alien drool. Yeah. Oh, yeah, in, in Alien 4, they, they just bought jars of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. The Predator's voice snarls, growls, roars, and laugh was applied by the legendary... Peter Cullen. Peter Cullen. The man oh, behind... Prime. Yep, Optimus Prime, Avenger from Dungeons and Dragons. Eeyore. Eeyore. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Optimus. Hello, Eeyore. I just found out not gonna be me anymore. Every cartoon we watched as uh, kids in the 80s, yeah. I think. He was in there somewhere. 
While there is never a name given to this species in any of the films, the terms Yuhucha and Hish have been used in the books and comics of the expanded universe. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of the same thing with the aliens as well, because there's no name ever applied to the Predator, mm. and there's no actual name applied ever to the aliens. I think they refer to them as bugs. Uh, xenomorphs. The xenomorphs. It's like, I, I'm always confused to where these names come from. Mm. Well, xenomorph is more of a botanical description, isn't it, really? Um, I think I, I don't think that's, that's intended as a, uh, a name for the species. It's more of an unknown alien species. It's just a generic term for an unknown creature, I think. What, like Alf? <laughs> xenomorph is better than space jockey. Yeah, but the space jockey was cool. It's it had a crap name. Yeah. Creepy as hell. Apparently the uh, alien prequel is going to... Well, the, the thing that Ridley Scott's doing is going to tell us a bit more about the space jockeys. Well, according to Ridley Scott, it's the last eight minutes are connected to Alien. In some way. All right. Okay. <laughs> it features a space jockey going, Oh my God, it's a face hugger. <laughs> no, it's like, no, it's a space jockey going, Oh, that curry's a bit spicy. <laughs> <laughs> hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my darling. Hello, my <laughs> rat. <laughs> Spaceballs, exactly have a drink. And when Dutch finally gets the literal drop on this creature using the unseen counterweight to a trap that the otherwise ever-observant creature suspiciously avoided, he accepts his defeat and sets his gauntlet to explode, a nod to Sepulchre. No. no, he did not accept it. He was being a bad sport because he laughs and tries to kill Dutch with the explosion. Well, I was, I was about to say that, but... I was about to say, I think he's actually being a bad sport there. Although, I think it's... I think through the later movies, you sort of get the sense that every time they're defeated, they sort of have to do that. So with the exception of get, two. Yeah. Actually, that's a fine point, so that they can't get discovered by the rest of the That is a very fine point. It's also a nod to seppuku in Disgraced Samurai, but with an alien twist of fuck you to whoever managed to defeat them, since the resultant explosion would kill everything nearby. The culture of these creatures is not without honour, as this film and its follow-ups have shown, but as individuals, predators are poor losers. Yeah, I think uh, the, it's sort of the best explanation of why they ha- they're so destructive when they fail or die or going to die is I, I'm sorry to bring one of these up, but if you remember AB One, yeah, there's a flashback where you see the the them losing to the aliens. Yeah, and then they blow so, the shit up out of everything. They blow everything up, yet the temple's still there in the ice. Uh, who knows? <laughs> Problems <clears throat> for those movies later on. But I think that's sort of why. I think it's sort of hinted that they when they're hunting dangerous prey, perhaps they do it as a a final cleansing it's ritualistic definitely even though yeah. having said that the predator when he laughs is kind of like going ha 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 it, 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 is, a, it is a fuck you it is totally <laughs> the fact that this movie holds up 24 years after it's made is just a testament to how good it really is and yes they are characters they, they aren't really characters the characters but they work it is one of those movies where it really does work and it it's a wonderfully shot movie as well there's only very few scenes that will stand out because I think they were shot differently one of them is uh, the scene of Mac using the, um, the mini cannon mm. I, I think that is actually someone using a real one oh. 
and I think there's also the shot of uh, Dutch, well, the stuntman going off the waterfall and into the, the water. Oh, yes. Which, don't... by the way, was paid homage to in both Avatar and Predators released in the same year. Uh, but the biggest one is, whenever we get, I get into the argument of CGI versus practical effects, this is the movie I point to and say, this is why practical effects will work better. Mm. Because... It does feel very meaty and very much immediate, yeah. very much there. Uh, I mean, there's... Yeah, you can tell maybe the fingers are extended in the Predator sort of hands, but it still all works. And when they do mix it, marry it to the early and really early computer graphics that they do use in the movie, it still holds up really well. I'd say it actually depends on the workshop. Wetter, CGI, practical, it can handle either of them. Stan Winston, practical, it can handle that. Even Industrial Light and Magic have made some ropey effects in their time. Star Wars prequels. <clears throat> Jurassic Park is a brilliant marrying of the two, especially when CGI was in its infancy. At the that is perhaps the ultimate ultimate proof that this is how special effects should have gone with the mix between the the live action practical effects. Rather than leaving too much on, on one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there's plenty of films which do manage to combine the two in, 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 in abundance. Like I said, Lord of the Rings does it all the time. Lord uh, of the Rings is a very good modern example. Well, I say modern. It's fucking ten decade. years old. That's ten scary. years. This, this November. That's this scary. December. <laughs> so, see you in, in one year's time for The Hobbit. <laughs> okay, um, anything more before we carry on to Predator 2 for the next week? To be honest, I, mean, uh, I think, as Neil says, it, it's the fact that it stands up now, I mean, it, it, it's kind of viewed, I mean, I, I, I've always looked at it as a bit of a, a stereotypical, cliched 80s action flick, and to a, a large extent it is. I mean, that first, the whole guerrilla camp attack is is just cliche after cliche for a good five or so minutes. throwing themselves forwards away from grenade explosions. Yeah, yeah. everyone firing from the hip. There's yeah. not one person who actually sights down a weapon no at one any takes point cover. in that. <laughs> no one takes cover. Um, it's like that except bit, the cowardly it's, enemies. It reminded obviously. me of that bit in Hot Shots Part 2 where Charlie Sheen just throws bullets at enemies. And they yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is the only, that is the only yeah. movie that's ever, that really hits that nail on the head because he, he kills someone with a chicken. Yes. Improvises with what he can find around him. That's exactly what Dutch did, you see. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> find chickens, kill him with a chicken. <laughs> we should probably do um, Hot Shots at some point. We have to. <laughs> Absolutely. We've got to do space balls at this rate. Oh, no, not space balls. <laughs> you hate space You don't like space balls yet. You made the reference. I'll do Max Brooks, but not Mel Brooks. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, is, uh, it is a bit of a, a, a cliche uh, wagon at times, but it does stand up very, very well still. I mean, it's, it's hugely enjoyable. Um, certainly if you compare it to something like Commando, uh, which is purely just an excuse to jam cliches into a film. Also John McTiernan. Indeed. Also and, features and Bill that. Duke. I eat green berets for breakfast. <laughs> um, but I mean, there's, there's hints of a, of a of a much deeper story there. I mean, certainly the, the whole... Get off some steam, Bennett. <laughs> We're not doing Commando. Just got to get all those... Uh, there's a lot of animosity, obviously, as you said, between uh, Dylan and the rest of the team mm. who, who have no link to him at all. Um, Dutch has got a link to him. The rest of them don't know him, don't trust him in the slightest. Yeah, Max, like... Um, yeah. yeah, Max friends to give us a way out here. I'm there, yeah. gut you. I, I will, no, I will, I will bleed you and leave you here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like and then as well. and there's there's a few other uh, just points at which the you know he's dismissed and he's he's left behind. He's he's being mocked by the lot of them, and then he starts to sort of bring it back through that middle section. Mm. 
and then obviously redeems himself entirely when he goes to to back up Mac and find Mac, and he's the only one that goes down fighting. Mm. Uh, Hawkins just gets wiped out. He's a Let's just imagine attack. Billy does as well. Well, yeah, but I mean, that was the thing. It never felt like he did because he's sitting there, there's all the preparation, he stood there, he's ready, and he's, you know, as you say, ready for battle. And then one brief scream, and that's it. That's the end <laughs> of Billy. It's almost like he was stood there waiting and, and didn't the even see him. the thing coming. You know, like just sort of jumped on top of him and just killed him from, I don't know, from a distance or whatever. Um, and, and Dylan is the only one who really goes down actually fighting. Even when he's had his arm shot off, he gets his backup weapon. It's only a bit shot off minute. if you look carefully beneath his jacket. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what he lost then. Um, he, was, he had his arm hidden away. Indeed. Uh, but he, he, he doesn't just fall over. He doesn't give up. He gets his other uh, weapon and starts trying again he's the mm. only one that does the rest of them just get wiped out that's a fine point Dylan, a much Dylan dies point. hard he does and if they if they'd spent less time um, with the, the the stick around and the knock knock <laughs> joke it's okay. a knock knock joke I'm sorry that's a uh, satire two, two drinks there um, and all the, the firing from hip and the, and the overblown um, attack on the gorilla camp and all the rest of it they could have spent more time developing that and having a bit more of a story there uh, and I, I kind of wonder what if they remade Predator now with with don't you know, say such words no but if, if someone uh, you know you've got a good director and a good cast and someone remade Predator but not a, a, a like for like remake but remade the basic idea of it a modern version I wonder whether I wonder how that would work I think well, it could be Predator done really, really well not that different, but I mean, they're going to make a sequel to. I haven't seen that yet, so I can't. Oh shit! Right, well, you're going to have to see it before we do the next one then. I will indeed. I've got a busy week next week. I've got you, several. You know squad. what? You're in for a treat. It's good. I don't care. I know what Neil's about to say. It's not that good, but it's. I like it. It's Paul Shotton's favourite. I wouldn't say it's bad by any stretch of the imagination. I just considering I just, the films you watch sometimes, Neil. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> I sat and watched a movie called Death Spa. Trust me, I know what bad is. But the funny thing is, I don't. <laughs> I'll point this out now. Out of all three of the Predator movies, this is the one I choose to watch the least. And it isn't because I don't like it or it's flawed or anything. It really isn't. This, like I said, I, I haven't watched Predator 2 for a while, which is my favourite one. And I'm interested to see if that one holds up nearly as well as this one. And I don't think it will. Yeah. But it is still the movie I... Is to, my number one choice is Predator 2. Uh, Predators I'd watch again because I really like that. I do like that movie... But it is it is the modern equivalent of Predator One. Yeah, it's it's roughly what they would have made. There are some interesting choices they make, but uh, it's interesting you should say that, Matt, because it really is kind of a, it's a retelling of it, but with a slightly different. There's, there's several twists in there, so I think you'll enjoy oh, it. Watch by the weekend. And we will leave you there, but we'll be returning in a few weeks' time with Predator Two and Predators in a double whammy of disembowelment and thirty percent more mandibles guaranteed. And some Gary Busey as well. Indeed. <laughs> Gentlemen, as always, please pimp your shows. Okay. Uh, I am co-host of the Dork Tunes podcast, which is anywhere between fortnightly and monthly at the moment, um, all about video game music. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Matt Harrier, or you can email me if you've got any requests for the show, matt at gamerdork.net. 
I'm going to plug something slightly different this time around. You can find some more work at Gonzo Planet, where I'm reviewing video game movies in video form. So, uh, if you want to see me suffer through my first, uh, well, I think it was my first movie review that I did, I did watch Super Mario Brothers. You know what's... Twitter, that is taking one for the team. (laughs) The worst thing is, you say it's taking one for the team watching Super Mario Brothers and Double Dragon. I still have Uwe Boll to go. Yep. Leaping from the shadows with his shitty, shitty cash-ins. Kill me. Yep. Kill me now. In fact, excuse me, I must get to the chopper! Get to the chopper! <laughs> and that's all from us this week. Next week sees the return of Gonzo Gaming, with a look at Crisis 1 and 2, in which you play a super strong killing machine who can turn invisible, has heat vision, and hunts down soldiers in jungles both urban and regular, with an array of exotic weaponry. <laughs> <laughs> we will see you next week. Get to the chopper. Chopper! Chopper! <laughs> you escaped alive! Do it! Do it now! Do it now! Kill me, Amir! <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, I think that'll do. I think that will. <laughs> plug something completely different this time round you can find me at the digital pl- uh, ah got the name wrong <laughs> Planet Gonzo <laughs> you can find my work or some of my work at Planet Gonzo as Gonzo well Planet, you- ah! <laughs> Gonzo Planet stop Gonzo well get there it's not difficult you can Gonzo Planet. Damn it. Okay, just start from scratch.